Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And today we're picking ourselves up, dusting ourselves off, and trying all over again with a show we're calling Trial and Error. We'll talk with a Georgetown researcher who may very well help doctors avoid much of the trial and error involved in treating cancer. Our ultimate goal, actually, is to make cancer therapy a personalized therapy. And we'll meet a man who was tried and convicted for a crime he didn't commit and has been fighting ever since to prevent other people from going through the same ordeal. You can only choose to move forward, but that's time that you would never get back. Plus, we'll engage in some theatrical experimentation with the folks at DC's Studio Theater. It's keeping trying ideas, and it's absolute playwright's heaven. But first, we'll look at a legal trial that's ruffling feathers all over Maryland right now. The case has to do with pollution on the eastern shore and who's to blame for mucking up the waterways that feed the Chesapeake Bay. As environment reporter Sabri Benashore tells us, environmental groups are going after some big names in the poultry industry. And small farmers say they're getting trampled in the process. What I want to do is we'll go down 50 and hit... Tom Jones points out the window while driving through chicken country near Salisbury, Maryland. Across a green and gold field of soybeans are a dozen long, white, hanger-looking buildings. Up to two, 300,000 birds that can be raised in a year there in that one operation. Jones is a retired biology professor and is president of the board of directors of the Assateague Coastal Trust. It's a chicken operation because it's very long building... Uh, that's only one story with a, just a plain old slanted roof to get the rain off. And inside there is a concrete slab and uh, then feeders all the way up and down that long building there. Jones believes that across the Delmarva Peninsula, manure from those chickens is polluting waterways with nitrogen and phosphorus. He gets out by the Pocomoke River, which the state of Maryland classifies as impaired. What you see is a lot of brownish-looking water. There could be times of the year when you come by here and it's a solid green because of uh, growth of the algae, phytoplankton. And right back there, there's a pond, but it's loaded with uh, what's called duckweed, which is a small plant that floats on the surface. The entire surface of that pond is choked with it, it's covered with it. And the reason being is because there's so much fertilizer in the water. His group filed a lawsuit, along with the Waterkeepers Alliance, against one farm in particular two years ago, the Hudson Family Farm, run by Alan and Kristen Hudson of Berlin, Maryland. And so we've sampled above and below, and above the property did not have any of these excessive amounts of nutrients, but below it, it did. In a community room 45 minutes away in Georgetown, Delaware, Andrew McLean is quietly fuming. It's brought the farm community here on Delmarva more together than any issue that I've ever seen. McLean is head of the Delmarva poultry industry. He's a chicken farmer himself. Every creek on Delmarva, because we are flat and the water does not move very quickly, winds up being high in bacteria just from, you know, the normal detritus uh, of things growing near it. Legal experts say it's extremely difficult to prove whether a farm is actually polluting because it's not like a factory or a sewage plant where there's a simple exhaust pipe you can test. The Maryland Department of the Environment checked out the Hudson Farm and did not find they polluted, just that they could have. But the waterkeepers are pressing their own case, and that's making McLean and other farmers extremely fearful. They've raised $200,000 to cover legal fees and expenses for the Hudsons. The state said, okay, you're good. 
and then somebody else comes in and sues you. The water keepers argue that dust and feathers from ventilation fans and boots, among other things, are spreading pollution. The judge in the case wrote this past spring that if he accepted all the arguments of the environmental groups, every farm on the peninsula would probably be in violation of the Clean Water Act. Everybody recognizes uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I. A more likely implication of the case may not be whether the Hudsons or any other farmers pollute, but who can be held responsible for such pollution. Pamela Marks is with the law firm Beverage and Diamond, which focuses on environmental regulation and litigation. As a big picture, I think that the case could possibly speak to the extent to which a poultry integrator uh, might um, bear some responsibility for environmental compliance at farms that they, can, um, that they contract with. The environmental groups are going after Purdue, the giant poultry producer. They want to hold Purdue responsible for the alleged pollution of one of its contractors. That's because large poultry giants like Purdue supply the grain and the chicks to individual farmers and then come to pick up the chickens once they're grown. An attempt several years ago by the Maryland legislature to make industrial processors responsible for the practices of their contractors failed. This case is an effort to tie the two together through the courts. Alison Proust is with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. She says this would help clean up on a larger scale. Suddenly these smaller family farms or small farm operations or large farm operations are going to have someone else at the table with them contributing financially, taking on some of the burden. Farmers say when it comes to manure, they want to keep control of it. They can sell it or use it as fertilizer. In any case, the question may never be resolved in this case. The judge has expressed a skepticism towards the arguments laid out by the environmental groups and in what may be a thinly veiled warning, has pointed out it is well within his rights to make them pay for the farm's legal fees if they lose. I'm Sabri Beneshore. What's your stance on this lawsuit? You can cast your vote by emailing us at metro at wamu.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. We turn now from a legal case in progress in Maryland to criminal trials that happened long ago in Virginia. The books closed on these cases a while back, and they would have stayed that way. But thanks to a forensic scientist's unusual work habits and a convicted felon's quest to clear his name, Virginia is now scouring old DNA evidence for judicial errors. Over the past decade, this massive review has uncovered at least 10 wrongful convictions. And according to a recent study of the data, more exonerations could be forthcoming, along with more information on the true rate of wrongful convictions. Jacob Fenston has the story. Back in the 70s and 80s, before the advent of DNA testing, forensic science was limited to things like testing blood stains to see if they match the blood type of a suspect. Is this type A blood? Is this type B? Kelly Walsh is with the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center. She says one of the analysts in Virginia whose job it was to do this testing, well, she had a peculiar habit. She would take swabbings or clippings from the original evidence and tape them to her files. The tip of a Q-tip from a rape kit or the tiny corner of a stained sheet. Now, this was not standard procedure, and this analyst, her name was Mary Jane Burton, she wasn't thinking ahead, planning for the day when DNA testing would be invented. 
She just liked to keep these little bits of evidence as a prop to hold up in court and tell the jury, This is what I tested. When Burton passed away in 1999, she left behind this secret archive of evidence. The DNA of thousands of convicted offenders was hidden away in storage. During the trial, basically I remember is that she had notes in front of her. In 1982, Marvin Anderson was on trial for a rape that had occurred earlier that year in rural Hanover County, Virginia. It was the summer before his senior year of high school when his life took this abrupt turn. One Tuesday, he went into work at his summer job and got called into the office. No reason why, just, you know, come to the office. And when I arrived at the office, there was two officers from Hanover County and the Ashton Sheriff's Department standing there waiting on me. Anderson had no criminal record, but he was identified by photo and then in a lineup. From that moment, when I was standing in Hanover Jail, I knew I was going to prison. Automatic, straight from the bat, I knew I was going. Whether I did the crime or didn't do the crime, I knew I was going to prison. He was put away at age 18 and wouldn't get out of prison for 15 years. When DNA technology came along, he wanted his evidence tested. But his lawyer at the Innocence Project in New York kept getting the same answer from the state crime lab. We don't save evidence. We send it back to the submitting agency. Sean Armbrist with the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project says the students working on Anderson's case were so convinced he was innocent they wouldn't take no for an answer. Can you just look? You know, these students won't leave me alone. In 2001, the Virginia Department of Forensic Science finally pulled Anderson's file out of storage. Oh, wow. There's evidence here. Taped inside were the Q-tips from 1982, little snippings of evidence Mary Jane Burton had saved. In 2002, then-Governor Mark Warner pardoned Anderson, officially exonerating him of the crime that took place 20 years earlier. What struck me not just with Mr. Anderson, but a few other folks, was it how little malice they bore, how little bitterness they had. Anderson was the first, but over the next two years, four more men were exonerated by the evidence Mary Jane Burton had saved. Yeah, I was very surprised. So in 2005, Warner ordered the state to test every case where evidence had been retained. The Department of Forensic Science began sifting through more than half a million case files. Kelly Walsh with the Urban Institute says this test-them-all approach created a totally unique set of data. What Virginia did is take the traditional methods of looking for wrongful convictions and turn it on its head. In June, the Urban Institute released a report finding the evidence in Virginia supported exoneration in 38 cases. If you do the math and subtract the cases where the DNA was too corrupted to provide any answers, the report suggests a possible wrongful conviction rate of 8% in murder cases and 15% in sexual assault cases. But Walsh says those numbers come with caveats and further study is needed. Even if reality is half of this, even if reality is closer to 4% or 7.5%, that's still much, much higher than any previous estimate from other research. But Virginia's DNA testing project has been mired in criticism throughout. Sean Armbrust with the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project says in the early years, the state was extremely secretive about the whole project. I think a lot of the issue is that the project was so overwhelming, and it was given to the state crime laboratory itself, and they're good at science, but it was hard for them to sort of conceive of and come up with a plan that made sense for the criminal justice system as a whole. For example, the Commonwealth's clunky process of tracking down convicts who could possibly be exonerated by DNA. In the beginning, the state would simply mail a letter to the convict's last known address. Basically what it's saying is, we're the government, we're here to help, contact us if you need us. And this is being sent to people 
who have been wrongfully convicted by the government. John Sheldon, a criminal defense lawyer in Fairfax, is one of several attorneys who volunteered to help the Commonwealth track people down. Now Sheldon is moving on to the next batch of 60-something names. Statistically, from our past experience, there should be a couple of these guys who are innocent. Altogether, the state has to track down more than 1,000 offenders from the 70s and 80s. So far, several hundred have been found. Finding the rest could take months or years. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time for a quick break, but when we get back, trial and error in the battle against cancer. And so we were able to screen drugs that we thought might be useful and were able to identify one that killed the tumor cells and not the normal cells. And they used it in the patient and they got the same results in the patient that we got in the laboratory. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, our theme is trial and error. And thus far, we've been focusing on the courts, you know, legal trials. Well, now we're going to talk medicine. About seven years ago, a university laboratory developed technology for the first vaccine for human papillomavirus, or HPV. That's the virus that can lead to cervical cancer. The lab is run by Dr. Richard Schlegel at Georgetown's Department of Pathology. And now, Dr. Schlegel and his team appear to have made another big discovery, one that could eventually change how doctors treat cancer. Jonathan Wilson met up with Dr. Schlegel in his office to learn what the lab's latest medical trial has revealed. How do you explain what your lab has accomplished uh, most recently with, I, I believe it's called reprogrammed cells? Yeah, the, uh, so the concept of reprogrammed cells, or actually the finding that we have uh, come upon, is that we have a way to grow normal and tumor cells from a patient very rapidly and very efficiently, so, um, which hasn't been able to be accomplished before. The bottom line is if you try and grow human cells, it takes weeks and weeks and months to get them to continue to grow out. And most of those don't develop into stable cell lines. And in our case, we can do that very rapidly. Uh, And so what it allows us to do now is to go in and take a biopsy, for example, of um, someone's tumor with a needle, for example, like a breast tumor biopsy, and within days have tumor cells growing out of there and normal cells if you have a normal area so that you can identify drugs that kill the tumor cells and not the normal cells. And that was the ultimate goal that we wanted to achieve in the beginning. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that what you were able to do with these cells because of the techniques that your lab has developed was to try different techniques on these tumor cells that then you could be more confident could work on the patient. Is that correct? That's right. So uh, the critical thing for us, and, and in the case that we published in the New England Journal of Medicine, is taking a biopsy of a patient who had a lung tumor, growing that out, growing out some of his normal lung tissues. Uh, and this was a very unusual lung tumor. I, I won't go into the details, but there was no 
to find therapy for it. And so we were able to screen drugs that we thought might be useful and were able to identify one that killed the tumor cells and not the normal cells and take that back to the clinicians and say, well, we're not sure if it will work, but in tissue culture it worked and they used it in the patient and they got the same results in the patient that we got in the laboratory. If you had not had this technique, and up till now doctors haven't, doctors basically try a bunch of different things to see if they'll work and and sometimes it's too late? Yeah, that's exactly the problem is that the way it works, you may have a drug that's known to say treat a lung tumor. Um, In most cases you'll get a response, but they come back. And then it becomes a game of oncology experimentation. I hate to say that, but you know, you don't know what's going to work, but you try another drug on the patient. And if it works, good. If it doesn't, you go on to another one. The bad thing about that is every time you use a new drug on a patient, there's a lot of toxicity associated with it. So with each different round of chemotherapy, the patient gets sicker and sicker. And so what we're able to do with this, we hope, when it gets tested in much larger trials, is to use the laboratory to define the spectrum of drugs that would be good to use in the patient and and avoid all of the toxicities. One thing that uh, I have heard mentioned in connection with this discovery is personalized medicine. Is this something that could really further the idea of personalizing cancer treatment? Yeah, I mean, that is our ultimate goal, actually, is to make cancer therapy a personalized therapy. We are not going to just take a drug off the shelf. Uh, Drug X is best for this population of patients who have lung tumors. We will actually take your tumor and find out what drug is best for you, and that's the ultimate goal. After the papillomavirus vaccine, you thought you were going to wind things down with your career. <laughs> Has this changed things? Uh, yeah. it's uh, it, Like I said, it's been a dramatic change for me because I thought after the papillomavirus vaccine, we would continue to work on HPV because it's involved in some other tumors that are very important, like oral cancers. But with this developing, all of a sudden it's sort of like uh, an not a midlife crisis, but a late life crisis, where all of a sudden we've got much more to do and it's going to be very hard to stop. Well, you've got to tell your lab to slow down and stop making discoveries. (laughs) That's right. That was Dr. Richard Schlegel speaking with Metro Connections' Jonathan Wilson. And by the way, Dr. Schlegel and his researchers say it could be years before further studies of this technique are completed. So with that caveat noted, if you'd like more information on this new research, you can find links on our website, metroconnection.org. We move now from the medical lab to the kitchen. If you've dabbled in the culinary arts, then you know they can involve more than a bit of trial and error. But what about when you're trying to experiment on a really tight budget? Well, Chef Ali Sosna is teaching children how to do just that. This Monday in D.C.'s Shaw neighborhood, Chef Sosna is kicking off an after-school program called Microgreens. It's designed to teach students how to prepare delicious family meals on a food stamp budget. 
The chef recently met up with Emily Friedman at Target, Sosno's grocery store of choice, to discuss the trial and error involved in eating healthy without breaking the bank. So where did the idea come from to start microgreens? So over the last four years, I was working with D.C. Central Kitchen, which is a local nonprofit. I saw that a lot of the kids would like fruits and vegetables, but then when they got home, there was a big disconnect in in budget restraints, time, and uh, culinary education, just basic know-how. And I wanted to figure out a way to lessen that gap, um, which would inevitably also make kids more healthy, increase family time, and just make people more aware of their health. Can you talk a little bit more about why kids weren't eating fruits and vegetables at home? It's easier for folks across the United States to get a hamburger from McDonald's or go to 7-Eleven or whatever and get very high saturated like trans fats and processed foods, right? And so the ability to cook and the time it takes to cook was just kind of weeded out. How did your partnership begin with DCPS? So DCPS has been great with the the outreach that they want to do in their schools. And um, the principal at uh, Shaw Middle School was great. And he just said, please come teach my kids more about food. And just very, very excited about the program. So we're going to launch there October 15th. So why sixth grade? Why is that the optimum time to teach a kid what to eat and how how to cook it? Um, I mean, the earlier the better, of course, with food education. But we chose sixth graders because... They're at an age where they're responsible enough to go home and to cook for the family if they need to. I've, I've found that this age group is between 5th, 6th, and 7th grade. They're very open-minded. They're willing to learn. We have an hour a week with these kids, myself with six other fellows, which are the volunteers that help me teach the kids, and we teach them the, the recipe of the day. So the f- second day, the first day is going to be knife skills, learning how to hold a knife, proper kitchen etiquette. The second week we go right into trussing a chicken. They cook the meals within the hour and then they go home with food to feed a family for. So how do you do a SNAP budget for a family? In D.C., the most amount of money that you can get for a family of four, about $167 per month or $668 per month for a family of four is the max that you can get. The average meal that we do, the tops, is $3.50. Okay, so let's talk about one meal that you teach. So we're going to cook a pork ragu with all of our proteins, whether they're chicken, fish, or pork. You have to work with a large quantity, and you have to make three meals out of it. And that is the only way to get the protein to be at the price point that you need to make your budget, right? Um, And there's a brown rice bag that is five pounds. And it's $3.29. We always want to get brown rice because it's literally five cents more than the white rice per serving. But it, you get significant amounts of nutrients from the brown rice because it's not bleached. And then we do an onion. We do one onion, but we buy our onions by the bag. Then we do one cup of frozen peppers, and this is important going into the winter season. I live off of a ton of frozen vegetables, and when you buy about a one-pound bag, which is your standard frozen bag of vegetables in the grocery store, when you do one cup of peppers, it's only 25 cents. So I have, maybe it's a misconception, but like I have this idea in my mind that frozen vegetables aren't as nutritious as fresh vegetables. Is that true? Not at all. Frozen vegetables are just as good as fresh vegetables. You just have to know how to cook them. On a snap budget, it's very, very hard to have, like, say, the my plate example, where you have X amount of greens, X amount of fruit, X amount of milk, X amount of whole grains, because 
it doesn't allow for that. And that's the bigger problem, is that I can't go and fill myself up on a snap budget, tons of fruits and vegetables. I can't. And so right now you have to make sure that that extra and that majority of your plate is a good ingredient. What are the other things that you just can't have on this budget? Butter, whether it's salted or unsalted. You don't buy gum. You don't buy um, any mostly sugar-based items. And so I don't have a ton of money to go buy that Nutella or the processed already-made salsa. Like, I have to figure out how to make it. I mean, people on Snap do buy this stuff. And then they're left with no money halfway through the month. Or there's there's promotions going on, right? So if you buy one, you get one free. And really what we teach the kids is, are you full? When are you full? Recognize your body. It's not calorie-based. It's not fat-based. It's not a um, nutritional, it must meet this standard. It's recognizing how when you put something in your body, how it affects your body. Chef Ali Sosna, thank you so much for hanging out with me at Target. Anytime. You can follow the progress of microgreens as Chef Sosna kicks off her pilot program. We have links on our website, metroconnection.org. All these motors in your body need a lot of fuel to go on, like carbohydrates, fats and proteins, vitamins, and so on. What's left over forms the building blocks you need, indeed, to grow on. Yes, you are what you swallow, so the next time you feel hollow, don't just fill your face with any old kind of treat. This goes for every kid or six-foot athlete. All you really are is what you eat. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Mount Pleasant in northwest D.C. and Forest Estates in Silver Spring, Maryland. My name is Andrew Hartman. I am 44 years old, and I live in Mount Pleasant in the District of Columbia. Mount Pleasant is right next to Columbia Heights. We're bordered on the south by Harvard Street and on the north and on the west by Rock Creek Park. There's a lot of young people that live in Mount Pleasant, as evidenced by late nights. Some of our restaurants turn into bars. And Mount Pleasant Street is really an interesting kind of place because it's like a small town downtown. And that's really what, I guess, Mount Pleasant feels like to me. Mount Pleasant was started by clerks from New England that worked on the hill. And there was a streetcar that came up from the Capitol and stopped right here on Mount Pleasant Avenue. We have a lot of activities in Lamont Park. The farmer's market takes place there every week. There have been movies. They put up a Christmas tree every year and decorate a tree. There's a little stage, and so there'll be bands and contests. Fridays and Saturdays on the weekends, we often have mariachis that are going up and down the street. When I have my windows open, there's nothing like living in Washington, D.C. and hearing mariachi music just coming up from downstairs. Everything you need is right here, and so you constantly are bumping into the same people. And people say hello to one another and care about one another. Come visit Mount Pleasant. (laughs) You'll fall in love, too. My name is Ashwini Tambe, and I'm 42 years old, and I moved to Forest Estates in 2005. So the boundaries of Forest Estates are the Sligo Creek Trail, that's the wonderful woods, a paved trail, a running, hiking, biking trail, and on the other side, Georgia Avenue, which is probably... Um, one of the busiest streets in the entire area. It's not dramatically hilly, but there are gentle slopes and a lot of trees. And I, I can't tell you enough 
how much I appreciate these trees. I'm not a very religious person, but every weekend, it's almost a worshipful practice for me to go to the woods. We live across from a family who has a trampoline in their front yard, and it's become our community trampoline because they have very generously offered it to any parents um, who need to get their kids out of their hair for a little while. And so whenever I step outside my house on a summer day, I am greeted by the sight of about three or four kids up in the air, hurling themselves around. I think primarily there's this nice economic diversity. You will see houses that are really, really big with multiple cars, and then you'll see houses that are much smaller and more modest and all within a street or two of each other. And we are in conversation with each other. So I think that makes for uh, a sense of being comfortable in your own skin. We heard from Ashwini Tambe in Forest Estates and Andrew Hartman in Mount Pleasant. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, taking chances in the world of theater. I want them to know that there's a place they can come with a really open mind, you know, that could be a kind of glorious hit-or-miss enterprise, and that's the whole idea of the thing. It's coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this hour we're engaging in a little trial and error. We've met Washingtonians who've gone through trials in the courtroom and the medical lab. And now we're going to focus on a little trial and error in the theater. So take out pages 89A and 90. So 89A and 90 are being replaced by 89A and B and 90 and 90A. Um, We're at a rehearsal at DC's Studio Theater where literary director Adrian Alice Hansel... Straight replace. ...is sharing script changes for a new play soon to open on Studios Stage 4. And then we have new pages 112 to the end of the play, which now ends on page 127. It feels shorter in my hands. Yeah. That's David Muse, Studios Artistic Director. He'll be directing this production, a world premiere by Tony Award-nominated British playwright Bryony Lavery. It's called Dirt. And it's a little hard to just encapsulate in a sentence or two but it had something to do with dirt. And dirt in many forms, like dirt as soil, dirt as the results of decomposition, dirt as emotional mess. Dirt's first performance is October 17th, but as we just heard, the script clearly is still in progress. Over 50% of the play is new since I read it for the very first time. But we're sort of honing in on what we're going to do. And by the time the thing is in front of an audience, we expect it to be more or less complete, at least for this production. See, Dirt is the second show in Studio's Lab series. Lungs by Duncan McMillan, which Studio produced late last year, was the first. David Muse says he dreamed up the Lab series shortly after replacing Joy Zinneman as Studio's artistic head in 2010. I inherited an institution that hadn't done a lot of new play development, and 
It's a personal interest of mine. Because sometimes he says you might find a play that you're really excited about. But that's unfinished. Or experimental. Or non-commercial. And it can be hard to find a place for it in a season, but you feel passionate about producing it. So what do you do? You launch a series outside your theater's regular subscription season. To take the pressure off. And to free us up to take chances on things that weren't yet done. And that, says playwright Bryony Lavery, is what she calls absolute playwright's heaven. For one thing, throughout the development process, Lab Series playwrights are invited to stay in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, Lavery describes as a very handsome city. So Lavery and her ever-changing script have been in residence in this very handsome city for a while now. The process has been we all discuss it and laugh and try it and do different things in the rehearsal room, and then I go away and get up very early in the morning, and come in with propositions. Which she offers to the director and, of course... These most wonderful actors. So they immediately try and embody what, in this case, was was we started working on two new characters. And so we kind of cooked them and grew them up from the ground. I'm slightly gushing because I'm having such a good time. (laughs) Can we... Just take a moment and hear these four pages, because there's a lot new on them. From where? From Seven Deadlies, from Harper's OK. OK. I've got a big question. Why me? Why me? Me! I was fit and hopeful. What did I do to deserve this? That's one of Lavery's most wonderful actors, Holly Twyford, a Washington-area native who's been gracing stages for, well... Well, for a few years now. <laughs> I don't need to go into details. The giggler here is actor Matthew Montalongo. Dirt marks the fourth time he and Twyford have teamed up on a show. It's such a pleasure working with Holly Twyford. There's really nothing like working with Matthew Montalongo. I wake up every morning and I think to myself, I get to work with Holly Twyford again (laughs) today. (laughs) And Bryony Lavery thought she was gushing. Anyhow, Twyford and Montalongo have both performed in world premieres before. But because this material has been so raw and so malleable, they say the Lab Series experience has stood out. From an actor's point of view, like it's good for us to develop that muscle to commit to something holy, and then the next day, it might be something completely different that you are engaging with equal passion and fervor. A lot of times, actors' jobs are as interpreters, which is still really fun and exciting. But this even takes it to the next level of actually being able to help tell this story. Now, in the case of Dirt, the story involves a kind of love triangle between a guy named Matt, played by Matthew Montalongo, a waitress named Elle, and then Holly Twyford's character, a woman named Harper, who actually is um, a dead body. Which is not a spoiler, because from the moment I walk on stage, I say, um, now I'm the body. The play goes on to explore the various characters and, as Bryony Lavery says, various questions. When we die, actually, what happens to us? What we know for certain is that we become dirt. But are we dirt or are we, what's the word, Um, not gods, but spirits? You know, are we low or are we high? Are we base or are we divine? Sounds like pretty heavy stuff, sure, but as the playwright's quick to point out... It is very funny and very moving, um, serious, light... 
And that's a big reason David Muse selected Dirt for the Lab series. Not only might it engage all sorts of audiences, but it could enjoy a rich and full life after this production. Last year's show, Lungs, has since been produced a number of times in America and Great Britain, and it recently received a nomination at the Theatre Awards UK. But if we tried to, you know, create a play every single time that was going to go over the world, then the project in a way wouldn't work because we would start to second guess ourselves and focus on the success of the thing as opposed to what that writer needs in the development process at that time. Muse says he's pleased to see more and more Washington area theaters focus on new play development. But what sets studio apart, he says, is how the Lab series allows a play to change so dramatically from the first reading to the first performance. Which is a kind of crazy, nervous-making, exciting, freeing way to work that could be a kind of glorious hit-or-miss enterprise, and you're meant to come with an open mind and to see what we've come up with so far. You were buying flowers. I think you just use your brain and you make it up. You were happy. I pray you were happy, darling. And this is where the bit about her day used to come, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Snip, snip. Okay. <laughs> Performances of Dirt begin October 17th at Studio Theater in Northwest D.C. For more information on the show and on the Lab series, head to our website, metroconnection.org. On the subject of dirt, earlier this year, shovels in hand, archaeologists from the University of Maryland spent several weeks on the eastern shore, where they engaged in some scientific trial and error. They were digging for the first time in Easton, Maryland, in an African-American neighborhood called The Hill. The very first U.S. census way back in 1790 proves that Easton is one of the oldest African-American communities in the nation. And as Tara Boyle tells us, those university archaeologists are working with local residents to peel back layers of this neighborhood's nearly forgotten history. When you're an archaeologist, you get used to digging and digging and digging some more and coming up with not much. But every once in a while, you hit the jackpot. You can see it's in two pieces here. The bottom, which is pretty, pretty corroded, unfortunately, but it's oxidized and turned green. But you can see from the top that at one point it used to be sort of that gold color. Kate Dealey is a doctoral student at the University of Maryland, where we're standing in a sun-filled lab packed with filing cabinets and boxes of artifacts. She shows me two pieces of what is clearly a very old button. It's got the eagle, the the seal and the arrows on one side and olive branch on the other. This button, she says, was produced during the late 19th century. And would have been on an officer in the U.S. Army uniform. Dealey and her colleagues believe this button belonged to an African-American soldier named William Gardner. And until a few months ago, it was buried deep in the backyard of a dilapidated house on the hill. Now, this tiny artifact is a symbol of how this neighborhood is rediscovering its past. The hill is a captivating place. I mean, it's beautiful. Mark Leone has done archaeology all over our region for decades. The professor of anthropology at the University of Maryland oversaw the work on the hill, and he says it was unlike any other dig he's done before. 
for one key reason. It was a winner. It was a winner from beginning to end. Uh, I've never seen uh, an African-American community own an archaeological site like this. I mean, they grow up uh, on it and around it shooting marbles. And there folks were um, uh, walking in every day wanting to know how their archaeology was. One of those keen to watch this archaeology unfold was Carlene Phoenix. She spent part of her childhood on the Hill, and these days she's the president of the preservation group Historic Easton. She recently took me on a tour of the neighborhood. This was our comfort zone. Everything was here. I think we only had to venture out for shoes and clothes. So we had barbers and beauticians, and we had grocery stores and clubs for children and taxi stands. Everything was here for us. As we walked through quiet streets of modest single-family homes, it quickly became clear that those businesses are all gone. The vacant lot here was a site of uh, what was known as the Bronco Theater, was the African-American movie theater. Unfortunately, we wasn't able to save it. But Phoenix says even with all the hill has lost, this neighborhood is still remarkable. We're family. And so when we see one another, we acknowledge each other, and and we're overly friendly people here in in Easton. And as with any family, some stories get passed down and others are forgotten. Local historian Priscilla Morris says one of the forgotten pieces has to do with the hill's origins. If you look at the um, U.S. census, the first census in 1790, you see that it was a densely populated area with free African Americans. And many of the surnames that they have are the same family names of people who live here now. So it's a long tenure. That tenure may put the Hill in competition for the title of oldest African-American community in the U.S., a title that currently belongs to the Treme neighborhood in New Orleans. And Morris says there are other intriguing questions yet to be answered about the Hill. For example, how did such a large community of free African-Americans survive and thrive in a region so entrenched in slavery? And is it possible these free African-Americans may have helped Harriet Tubman ferry slaves to freedom as part of the Underground Railroad? It's going to take qualified scholars to take a look at that question. But it's a question worth asking, given the density of the free population here. It certainly would be a comforting place for someone making an escape to find some help. Answering these questions will take a fair bit of sleuthing, and Morris and other researchers have been poring over land records and genealogical info for clues. In the meantime, Carlene Phoenix says all this interest in the past means a lot for the Hill's future. This neighborhood, everybody just considered just this is the blighted neighborhood. The, na- the neighborhood where there's the crime is high and the drug dealers stand on the corner. But now that people know the history and they're seeing the interests, then it, then it just gives them pride to say, okay, I'm living in a neighborhood that is not what society says that it is. Back at the University of Maryland, doctoral student Kate Dealey is rifling through clear plastic bags of artifacts collected at the Easton Dig. She pulls out a sack full of multicolored marbles. We have um, some that are made out of glass, which sound the way you expect marbles to sound. And then these two here are ceramic marbles. Over the winter, Dealey and other researchers will analyze all the artifacts they pulled out of the ground in Easton. Professor Mark Leone says they're also building a database with the names of slaves who lived in the area so that modern-day residents can begin to fill in the missing pieces of their own stories and of the Hill's history. Are any of these descendants uh, alive on the Hill? 
Well, that's for people on the hill to look for. That's not an assignment. That's a request that they themselves have made. And as residents begin work on that task, Mark Leone and his team will return to the hill next summer to dig and dig and dig some more in a process that may just uncover some of this area's long-buried secrets. I'm Tara Boyle. You can link to that database of slave names and see photos of some of the artifacts recovered at the Hill on our website, metroconnection.org. Today's show with a very personal tale, recorded recently at the StoryCorps booth in Arlington, Virginia. Elizabeth Shook sat down for a conversation with her boyfriend of five years, Jim Talley. And as you'll hear, their conversation took a rather unexpected turn. You've written a book, and I was wondering, why did you write the book? Well, um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 17. And I was a senior in high school. That was back in 1984. And I had a pretty pretty serious manic episode. I had never had any signs prior to that. And I was hospitalized for a month, which was pretty traumatic, um, as you can imagine. And um, some point in there, I had this desire that I just knew someday I was going to be able to help people because of this illness and um, that I was going to be able to make a difference. So you started on a book. I did. I started writing a book way back, probably 20 years ago. And I I wrote about um, my manic episodes and about how, was, how I was able to um, maintain a normal life, you know, in, in between those. And um, I wanted to provide some hope for people. But I hand wrote it, put it in a notebook, and then I put it on a shelf, basically. And... Um, in the year 2000, I experienced my first serious depression, and that opened me up to more more depressions. But soon after that, I realized now I could write the book to the full gamut of the illness, both the manias and the depressions, and now I was ready. And I started typing everything that was in the binder, and then I, um, and then I went on further. And I, I wrote that in about a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so what's the status of the book now? Well, so I finally decided that I was going to go ahead and self-publish. And um, it's set to be published in, in November, so it's, it's going to be a reality pretty darn soon. And what's the title of the book? Uh, More Than Bipolar. And uh, the subtitle is A Memoir of Acceptance and Hope. So, um, of course, we've been dating about five years now. And one of the things that I told you years ago is that we will get married when you finish the book. So how do you see our relationship going going forward? Well, I expect that we get married. Oh, really? Well, the book's almost done. Uh-huh. Yeah? If you're true to your word. 
Really? And you've been telling people, you've been telling family and friends. (laughs) What have I been telling them? That we're getting married when the book is done. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) So don't you, what do you see for our future? Well, I'm very proud of you and uh, you're, you are a, passionate and compassionate person, and we wouldn't have been dating for five years if I didn't think that. So I would like to ask you, um, will you marry me? Yes. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Did you expect that? No. 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 I love you with all Mm. my heart. I love you, too. And I'm very lucky to have you. I'm lucky to have you, too. Yeah. That was Elizabeth Shook speaking with her boyfriend and now fiancé, Jim Talley. StoryCorps is the oral history project that gives Americans the chance to record, share, and preserve the stories of their lives. For more info about the StoryCorps booth that's currently in Arlington, head to our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Sabrina Benashore, Tara Boyle, Jacob Fenston, and Emily Friedman. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. Lauren Landau and Rafaela Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be on the move. We'll learn the different ways deaf and hearing people interact with city landscapes. We'll find out why the local skateboarding scene is becoming more popular and more diverse. And we'll meet a road-tripping man with a mission to visit the grave sites of U.S. presidents. You know, some kids are real into dinosaurs. Some kids are into outer space. My thing was presidents and... Nothing has changed. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.